0: During the
1: Reformation, the Bible in one's vernacular language became a point of faith for Protestants. For how could you believe what you could not understand? And you're not imagining it. I do have a rather weak voice today, but bear with me. I hope it's not too painful for you to hear. Never mind that illiteracy was high and many people could not read. There were always people who could read for you, or you could learn. And yet, in England, those opposed to putting the Bible in English were just as deeply entrenched as those who believed it should be. Indeed, in the first third of the 16th century, an English Bible was an illegal, heretical notion. To explore the creation of England's first printed Bible in English, the theology it embodied, and the circumstances in which it came about, I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Alec Ryrie. Alec Ryrie is Professor of the History of Christianity at Durham University, and Professor of Divinity at Gresham College, London. A Fellow of the British Academy, Professor Ryrie works on the history of the Reformation and Protestantism more generally. He's the author of numerous journal articles and chapters, and eight books, including Protestants, The Radicals Who Made the Modern World, The English Reformation, A Very Brief History, and The Age of Reformation, The Tudor and Stuart Realms. Professor Ryrie, thank you so much for joining me. I am really looking forward to talking to you. You've been a a great influence on my career. Your work is so important in the field that I think anybody who works on the 16th century looks up to you and admires your work.
2: (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you, Susan. It's lovely to be with you.
1: So today we're talking about the first printed Bible in English. And as I was thinking about this, I realised that I didn't Know when it came into being. At uh, Some point in the 1530s is all I've got. So, when exactly are we talking about?
2: Well, for the first full Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, printed in English, the textbook date is the 4th of October, 1535. This is the first edition of Miles Coverdale's Bible, which we think is published in Cologne details of the publication are unconfirmed. There's only one surviving copy, which is held at the British Library. And so this is a Bible being produced in English, but also in exile for importation into the English market. In that sense, it's a successor to the printed New Testaments that William Tyndale had produced 10 years earlier which have gone through a number of editions have been quite commercially successful insofar as a banned book can be commercially successful and so you know you might think well this is just the next stage of that procedure they've been producing illegal new testaments now we're producing an entire illegal bible and the translation is a rather problematic cobbled together one we can come back to that if you want to get into the weeds of that but as well as being a bible produced illegally for importing as contraband, it's also got an eye to the rapidly changing religious politics of the English Kingdom. It's a bid, or the beginnings of a bid, or a process of negotiation, which Coverdale and his backers have reason to hope might lead to it being accepted and legalised within the English Kingdom. I don't think Many of them expected that that process would move quite as swiftly and smoothly as it does to the point where just a few years later, every English parish is actually being mandated to place a, a full copy of a, a slightly different English translation of the Bible in each church. But you know this ends up unfolding very quickly over the, the mid to late 1530s.
1: Now, I feel like there's probably quite a lot of versions of what we would call the first Bible in English. So presumably there is well before this a Bible that exists in English. I mean, I'm thinking of Wycliffe. Can we go back that far to finding a Bible in English?
2: Sure, you can go back that far. You can go back beyond that. There are Anglo-Saxon translations of portions of the Bible. Translating scripture into vernacular languages. I mean, of course, this is something that Christians have been doing since the very beginning. Certainly in the you know Orthodox Western Christian traditions, the idea of translation of scripture becomes normative. During the Western Middle Ages, of course, the Bible is principally encountered in Latin, and that means overwhelmingly in Jerome's Vulgate translation from the 5th century. You know, which is a is a very good, very durable translation. But the reason for that priority on Latin is less the particular sacral significance of the language and simply that Latin is the language of writing. It's a long time before you get significant literary cultures starting to appear in European vernaculars. And so although a number of vernacular translations of the Bible or of portions of the Bible are produced, you know there's claims that Alfred the Great translated portions of the Bible, They remain reasonably sort of marginal, almost curiosities, because the only demand for a vernacular translation, a vernacular text of the Bible, the only people for whom that's going to be useful are those who can read their own language, but not Latin. And for most of the Western Middle Ages, there aren't many people who fall into that category. If you can read, then you can probably read Latin. So the main reason why the Bible remains in Latin throughout this period is simply that there's not an awful lot of demand. That begins to change in the later Middle Ages, the 13th, 14th century onwards, as, as literacy is beginning to spread. And of course, John Wycliffe, the Oxford theologian, becomes one of the leading figures here. He argues for the availability of the Bible in vernacular languages. He does not himself produce a translation. I think we know that for certain that's done by various disciples and followers of his shortly after his death. And the Wycliffe Bible, as it's circulated, is, oh, there's two different versions of it, but the later, the more widely used version you know, has his name on it more as a way of honouring him than any direct responsibility. It's also, of course, associated with a wider dissident heretical movement, the so-called Lollards, who look to Wycliffe as their you know, inspiration, even if they don't actually take an awful lot in terms of direct doctrinal teaching from him. And for that reason, and it really is exclusively for that reason, the Wycliffe Version The so-called Wycliffe version of the Bible is banned in England. You can be tried for heresy in principle, you can be burned alive for reading it or for owning a copy. But it should be said, first of all, that that's very unusual. It's unusual in two senses, both that it's unusual for that penalty to be pursued solely for that offence. And also that this is unusual in European context, that no other vernacular translation of the Bible is banned in the late medieval world. It's specifically this one, and it's specifically because it's associated with this group of heresies. It's not the notion of an English translation that they object to, it's the specific associations of this one. So when Erasmus pops up at the beginning of the 16th century in 1516, produces the first printed Greek version of the New Testament, along with a new Latin translation correcting what he sees as various errors in Jerome's version. And he adds to it this stirring preface in which he says the Bible should be translated into all languages so that, it, and he's, he's reaching for the most extreme examples of people he can think of, that even women should be able to read it. Even Scots should be able to read it, really going as far as he can. He doesn't actually do it. This stirring call for translation is written in Latin because Erasmus has a very finely judged sense of how far he can push his luck. But in its own terms, that's not controversial. It's only the specific English context which makes this call for a translation fraught on this island. And it means that when William Tyndale, who's this sort of you know aspiring young English scholar, goes to the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall, who is a friend of Erasmus' is an enthusiast for Renaissance Humanist scholarship, with a proposal to produce a new translation of the New Testament into English, which, you know, this won't be Wycliffe's translation. It'll be a fresh one made according to Erasmus's principles. I think he has every reason to expect that he'll be given the go-ahead, the bishop's blessing, to produce it. But he's not. This is a little naive. The, The politics of it are still too toxic for that. And so he ends up taking things in a different direction.
1: Okay, so there's this association then between a Bible in English and a political point of view, not just a religious one. It's something that positions yourself and your relationship to the state or towards kingship in a certain way.
2: It suggests a different kind of piety, a kind of something that's maybe not. anti-clerical, but is opposed to a particular kind of clericalism. But it should be said that that kind of piety, that interest in having a Bible in English that the common people can read, is a very widely shared one. This is not only a project of dissidents, heretics, and troublemakers. I mean, we, we know this partly simply by looking at the number of copies of the so-called Wycliffe Bible that survived. Enormous numbers of these manuscripts, hundreds of them from the 15th century. And many of them owned by people and by institutions that we know from every other indication are unimpeachably orthodox. I mean, King Henry the Sixth owns a copy of the, the Wycliffe Bible. The monks of the Bridgetine House at Zion, maybe one of the most you know, spectacularly orthodox houses in the in the whole of England, own copies. And this is simply because at this point, lots of earnest, pious, unimpeachably orthodox English Christians want to read the Bible in English. And by now you do have a significant slice of people, King Henry VI among them, who can read their own language much more fluently than they can read Latin. So there's a real demand for it, which means there's a collision between the official legal position which the church and state both want to maintain of translations being banned and a social reality of increasing numbers of people who are not exploring heresy or dissidence but just want to read the word of god somebody like thomas More, who is will take second place to no one in terms of his defense of catholic orthodoxy is unusually ambiguous on this point point. When he is pressed on this, and you know he absolutely goes to war with Tyndale over a whole range of different things that Tyndale does, he will not say that the English Bible should be banned. He simply says, now isn't the time. But at the moment, things are too fraught. Essentially, if all these heretics would shut up, then we could produce a proper English Bible that we ought to get to that point, but we just can't quite do it yet. And I think when you hear something that muted and uncertain from Thomas More, you know that you've got a problem.
1: So Tyndale's translation, I'm treading carefully here, is it the first to be translated into English from Greek, or at least the New Testament, from its original language? It
2: is absolutely the first. You know, There may have been people who'd attempted portions of that before, but the Greek text has only recently become widely available. Erasmus has produces the first printed version of the Greek text in 1516, well, the first one to be published. There's a Spanish version that's printed earlier, but they, it's still warehoused. And it's from Erasmus's version that Tyndale produces his translation. So, yes, I mean, the Wycliffe Bible is translated from the Latin, from the Vulgate, as all of the previous anglo-saxon versions that we know of and the european vernacular versions that are being produced before the early 16th century are so i mean tyndale gets gets several firsts and the first translation directly into english from greek and of course the first printed version of any portion of the bible in english that's a a a key double and he then goes on to teach himself hebrew i mean i think this was disputed for some years but i think it's now pretty much established that Tyndale is not just kind of mugging up his Hebrew and and borrowing it from others, but he really does achieve a a proper mastery of the language. He's an astonishing linguist and produces translations of close to half of the Hebrew Bible of, of the Old Testament before he dies.
1: That is astonishing, extraordinary work. So let's talk about his translation of the New Testament first then. How would you evaluate the theology of his translation? by comparison to those that had gone before.
2: Theologically, he's not putting a particularly strong spin on it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it endures. And it's not a Bible like, say, the famous Geneva Bible that's produced in the 1550s, which is bristling with marginal notes guiding you in a particular interpretative direction. But what he is doing is following Erasmus's lead, picking up the ideas that Erasmus has talked about in principle of what could be done with translation and putting them into practice. There are a few key choices that he makes about particular words which become highly controversial, and to take the two most famous ones. And they both point in the same direction, really. One of those is at the beginning of the Gospel accounts, I mean, most clearly in Mark, but you see it in in each of the Gospels, they state that the message that Jesus originally preaches at the beginning of his ministry is, well, as Tyndale says, and as most modern English translations would say, repent and believe the Gospel. But the problem is that word repent. The Greek word, which I'm going to butcher, but is something along the lines of metanoia, is translated into Latin by Jerome as, and I'm going to butcher this even more, penitem agitem, do penance, which implies the outward act of doing penance, and that links up seamlessly with the notions of penance as a formal sacrament, a process which is overseen and safeguarded by the priesthood as the Western Church had conceived it. Erasmus and following him, Tyndale argued that the original Greek word doesn't mean that. Its root means something like to turn around. And they see this as referring much more to a, a kind of inward reorientation of the self. It's something inner rather than outer. It's very much the kind of spirituality that Erasmus is keen on. And so Tyndale translates it not as do penance, but as repent, as something that happens within the heart between the believer and God rather than as a sacramental act with which the church has to be involved in. Or the other famous example is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 13, the famous chapter on, well, as we would normally say, on love, which finishes with this famous line that, you know, these three remain um, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And again, how do you translate the Greek word agape? In Latin, that's translated as caritas and makes its way into English as charity, which again implies outward actions or has come to be seen as being associated with outward actions and fits very much with a theology in which doing good works is essential to the business of salvation. Tyndale chooses to translate that not as charity but as love and again there's that sense of inwardness there's a focus that is more on the heart rather than on outward action that's at the center of this it's one of the things that Thomas More is most outraged by amongst the many things that he's outraged by in, in Tindall's translation so I mean neither of those things are kind of necessarily flashing red lights they're perfectly sensible and you know aggressively provocative decisions, but they help to show the direction in which this translation is moving and the the new kinds of theologies that it's capable of leading its readers towards Erasmus it has to be said who is very much part of this story, remains part of the Catholic world he dies in communion with Rome, so it's perfectly possible to walk up to this line and not to go over it. And I don't think you could say for certain that Tyndale's Bible is crossing it, but he's certainly going up to the line, opening the door and allowing others to do so. And it should be said, that's the text of the Bible itself. When you look at his preface that he writes to it, then at that point, um, the mask is off. It's very clear which way theologically he wants to lead his readers.
0: Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit.
2: Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Powhatan as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I find all of that so thrilling. I just love the way that with those two translations from Greek into Latin and then from Greek into English, you, you have this sort of, sort of sense of this kaleidoscope changing and the way that the world gets reshaped with each kind of change. That translation has so much power. I find it totally thrilling. And what's interesting, I suppose, is that Erasmus doesn't cross the line in part, I suppose, because he's producing his Greek New Testament before the line has been laid down, before Luther has or has not <laughs> nailed those <laughs> theses to that door in uh, Wittenberg. Which he
2: didn't do, let's just (laughs) put that.
1: (laughs) But that he is talking about reform before there's a sense that it could be something schismatic, I suppose. Whereas when Tyndale is completing his New Testament, it's very clear that there is a schismatic type of reform. Does Tyndale align himself with Luther?
2: Oh, plainly so. The preface, there's an argument over quite how much Luther makes its way undiluted into Tyndale's, the preface to Tyndale's New Testament, but on any showing a fair amount does. He's clearly part of that world by this point. Again, there's a debate over exactly when Tyndale aligns himself with this world, when he crosses over from being an Erasmian into being what you could broadly call a Lutheran, because he also has points of disagreement with Luther. But he's nevertheless, by the time we have the first, certainly by the time we have the first proper edition of the New Testament in 1526, he's clearly aligned himself with this emerging evangelical movement on the continent. And by this stage, the split between Luther and Erasmus has become unmistakable. They've openly denounced one another. Erasmus wanted a radically simplified form of Catholic Christianity, which would get away from all this sort of superstitious flummery and return to a kind of simple monastic inner piety very much concentrated on ethics and imitating Christ but without any kind of fundamental reimagining of Christian theology I and mean, Luther also wants to radically simplify it but he also wants to rebase the theology of the Christian world Erasmus wants to produce this radically simplified version of of Christian theology, but on the same basis as before. This is about an inward turn, clearing out what he sees as, as superstition. Luther also wants radical simplification, but on the basis of a radical reorientation of Christian theology as well. And so while the outward effect of the two movements can look similar for a while, and it's why they're able to travel kind of in convoy, as it were, for a few years. It fairly quickly becomes clear to both of them that some of their fundamental assumptions are different. And even for those who are following them, who may be drawn to following both men, there comes a point where a decision has to be made. And somebody like Thomas More, who is a dear friend of Erasmus's, will. Hang on to that friendship while also becoming a ferocious opponent of what the what the new evangelicals are doing.
1: In exile, Tindale had with him three companions, who, in some ways, give us the English Reformation in miniature. And one of them becomes very important to our story. Can you tell us a little bit about them, please?
2: And I have to guess which which three people. I was thinking you of mew- Barnes,
1: Frith, and Coverdale to be. Oh, specific. okay. I was wondering if George
2: Joy was going to be a, Who is his? Well, great sparring partner in, in biblical translation. Yeah, I mean, Frith is maybe the most the most interesting one, but possibly the least important for our story. You know, he's the, I think, arguably the greatest theological mind of the English Reformation, produces a couple of, of extraordinary works and is then killed. So there's a great might have been there. Barnes is the one who has the most clear link with Luther, or eventually has. he becomes a personal friend of, of Luther's, and for a while during the 1530s is the most obvious contact point between England and Lutheran Germany, when there's a real prospect, as there is for a while, of a diplomatic deal between Henry VIII and the German Lutherans. Barnes is a kind of crucial crossover point, and Henry VIII eventually marks the failure of those negotiations in his own inimitable way by having Barnes burned at the stake. Coverdale is the one who becomes the most important figure for biblical translation, which is a little perverse because Coverdale, although he's a you know interesting theologian, a great preacher, a very good writer. You know, his command of English is is excellent. He is no translator. He has a bit of Greek and no Hebrew at all. But when Tyndale is eventually arrested, Tyndale becomes absolutely persona non grata in England. Not just because of the biblical translation, but also because he then denounces Henry VIII's marital adventures. But most English evangelicals. Find ways of reconciling themselves to what the king is doing because they can see how important it is to have have him on their side Tyndale is too honest or too much of a purist to do that so he he remains a, a wanted man is eventually betrayed to the inquisition authorities in the Netherlands and is arrested and so the problem for those who are left behind once once he's gone is how can they complete his life's work Tyndale had been very clear that the one thing he wanted to achieve was a full Bible in English. He famously makes this offer to, to Henry VIII through Thomas Cromwell that if the promise could be made that an English Bible would be published, then Tyndale would undertake never to write another word, that he would stop all his activities. That's the only guarantee he wants. Not worried about prefaces or preaching or theological interpretation just to get the text out there. But so by the time of his death, we've had a New Testament. We've had the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, published. And he's got a few other scripts and scraps, and then quite a bit more in manuscript through to the, essentially uh, through as far as as the books of Kings. But that still leaves half of the Old Testament completely untranslated. And, you know, what are they going to do? And Coverdale, rather improbably... Becomes the person in whose lap this lands and that first english bible that i mentioned the one that's that's initially published in 1535 so while tyndale is still alive but you know during this gap between tyndale's arrest and his execution you know i mean it's a mess the new testament is tyndale chunks of the old testament are and i mean that's that's all all very good stuff but for the rest of it he has to cobble it together from the best sources that he can and doesn't have the Hebrew. He's got Latin and he's got German. And so he's able to take the existing Protestant translations of the Bible into German plus Jerome's 5th century Vulgate Latin text. And he compares them and tries to come up with the best English version that he can. And he's working in less than ideal conditions at great speed and the result is, well, let's say it's mixed, there are bits of it that are just gibberish. becomes really, really almost, in, almost incomprehensible. But in a sense, I mean, I think to be fair to Coverdale, you know, the point of this is not necessarily to have a sort of cast-iron English translation of the 23rd chapter of Isaiah, but to get the whole thing, some kind of Bible out there in English, to put a marker down, And to say to Henry VIII's new regime, of which Thomas Cromwell is now plainly the chief minister, Thomas Cranmer is Archbishop of Canterbury, the king himself is an enthusiast for Erasmus and for his ideas, and to say to them, you know, well, why not? We could do this. It's right here. Help yourselves. So it's an opening bid in a negotiation.
1: Because obviously one thing that has changed between... 1530 or 1526 and 1535 is Henry's pursuit of the annulment based on a principle of verses in scripture which overturn papal authority and so you know and then obviously what is tacked on is the idea of his own royal supremacy trumping papal authority so the bible in English suddenly has a radically different political meaning than it did in the 1520s.
2: Absolutely although What's not clear yet, what's still up for grabs, is what that meaning will be. I mean, obviously the idea of Christians giving particular reverence and authority to the Bible, I mean, that's not controversial. Everybody does this. The question is how this is going to work, who has authority over this text, and what's to be done with it. As you say, for significant plank of Henry VIII's initial argument against the viability of his of his first marriage is based on his reading of Leviticus i mean it's a rather tendentious interpretation of those bits of the bible but you know he's the king maybe almost more significantly as his quarrel with the pope kind of metastasizes from a dispute specifically about the legitimacy of his marriage into a wider argument about the nature of authority within the church and how the authority of the Bishop of Rome, if any, relates to his authority as the anointed King of England. Maybe more important than that, those verses in Leviticus, are the way that he is reading the historical books of the Old Testament, in which a series of kings of Israel have such such pivotal roles. Henry, we know, always identifies quite strongly with these biblical kings, above all with King David, which given David's marital adventures is maybe a little closer to the bone than you might have intended. And one of the things that you see in, it's just kind of assumed to be there, it's just a natural part of those Old Testament accounts, is that the kings have both political and sacral authority. that There is no division between church and state, as it were, between temple and state in ancient Israel. And so if you're Henry VIII, you think, well, you know, that should be me. That should be the sort of authority that I should be having. And it does appear that one of the reasons why he becomes an enthusiast for not merely translating but also publishing the Bible in English is that he has discovered these exciting truths about his own authority in the Bible. And with an almost charming naivety, he seems to think that if everybody else reads the Bible, they will discover the same self-evident truths there as well. You know, unfortunately, it's a podcast so I can't show people, but the image of the great Bible of 1539, the famous title page. But I mean, do look it up. It's all over the net. In which the king is depicted as distributing the Bible to his people and none of them open it. There are no open copies of the Bible on that title page, but the people all receive it and they cry out, Vivat Rex, and God save the king. You know, this really does seem to be what he thinks is going to happen, that this text is going to become a great bolster to his own authority. Of course, it doesn't really work out that way, somewhat to his you know, annoyance and perplexity. But that belief is one of the things which makes this process go go much faster than Coverdale and his, and his supporters in 1535 would have thought possible.
1: So that gamble of producing, albeit a somewhat garbled version of the Bible in English in 1535, pays off. And that's the first complete printed Bible in English produced in exile. But we find that Bibles are now to be printed and published in England is that the great bible or and i want to clarify is that is the bible produced in 1535 the bible that becomes known as the matthew bible or am i missing one in between here no the
2: 1535 version is the one that we would call the coverdale bible and it's not been reprinted very much since then essentially because it's it, because it's such a mess with one hugely important exception to that the one bit of the coverdale bible that has sailed on almost unimpeded into the modern world is his translation of the psalms because that is what is picked up in the book of common prayer so the the version of the psalms in the anglican prayer book to which so much music has been set and you know which is you'll still hear being sung in in cathedrals and churches where they do that kind of thing all over well not just all over england all over the world is coverdale's Version and there is, you know, I mean, his version of the Psalms is in better shape than that of some of the rest of the Old Testament, but there are still some slightly odd usages in there, as anybody who knows their prayer book psalter will, will be familiar with. But no, so that it's clear that this version of the Bible is a is a stopgap. the The next stepping stone on this journey is the so-called Matthew Bible that's produced in 1538 which is well i mean first of all it's it's got nothing to do with thomas matthew it's supposed translator I and mean, this is a, this is a is a pseudonym because this this text is still illegal but a serious attempt is being made to bring it into place this one is published in london there you know official permission is being allowed for it one of the reasons for the pseudonym is that this is still plainly you know, mostly the work of Tyndale, at least, you know, certainly the New Testament is only very likely edited Tyndale. And Tyndale is a name that Henry VIII will not hear. Tyndale is, is the man who has denounced his marriage and who he was delighted to see betrayed and burned, even though he had read and enjoyed some of his writing. So Tyndale is the name that dare not be spoken and so these these biblical translations are all dancing around the fact that they are basically very likely edited versions of, of Tyndale, and they can't admit it. There's a fellow called John Rogers who has a significant part in in reworking and tidying up Coverdale's version.
1: He's the first martyr under Mary, isn't he, John Rogers? Yes,
2: the same man. Most of the others don't make it quite that far, given the the, you know, the number of other executions. So that's a, a you know is is another. Kind of another move in this negotiation and it leads the following year onto this project for what becomes known as the great Bible, the one that's published in 1539 which I mean it's called the Great Bible which is simply a reference to the physical size of the book and that's not a coincidence and it's not a trivial point that the certainly the early New Testaments and even that first full Bible These are relatively small books. Okay, the the Bible is six volumes. You couldn't put it in your pocket. But the, the Tyndale New Testaments are quite small. These are books intended to be smuggled and to be concealed and certainly intended for personal use. Whereas the Great Bible is a liturgical Bible. It's a public book. It's intended for display. The eventual order is that each parish church will have one and that it should be chained in the church so that it's there for public consultation that people can come in and read it to themselves and to each other which causes all kinds of problems later on so it's in a sense this that you know the english bible is being moved out of the shadows and out of the private sphere into the public sphere both because it doesn't need to be ashamed anymore and also because that allows people to keep an eye on it you have to be affiliated with it in this process it's also an enormous technical challenge to actually print a book of this kind and at least to begin with there's a real question about whether anybody in England is going to be physically capable of producing a book on this scale.
1: And I suppose with the production of The Great Bible it feels that Tyndale's project has finally paid off. How much is that Great Bible really Tyndale's work? How much has it been changed?
2: Oh changes to it? Very little. It is pretty much pure Tyndale, at least in terms of its phrasing, you know, the language, and a great many of those sort of resonant phrases that have gone all the way through. Because, of course, the King James Bible becomes the kind of definitive version of the Bible in English, at least for many centuries. The New Testament of, of the King James Bible is 90% Tyndale. A lot of what we credit those translators with, you know, they've just taken from him. The rest of it, all the stuff that Coverdale had garbled, has been worked through and tidied up significantly by this point. They've got, it's not brilliant, but it's pretty good. It's certainly kind of comprehensible and a plausible version. Biblical scholarship is still in its infancy at this point and is moving very fast. The number of manuscripts that are available to scholars is becoming much more, it's growing rapidly. So when the later revisions are made in later decades, The bulk of the changes then are being made because simply new texts have become available. You're no longer just having to work from what Erasmus had been able to cobble together. But yeah, I mean, this is basically Tyndale's work. It is what he had set out to achieve. And I suspect he wouldn't actually have minded that his name is the one name that can't be allowed anywhere near it. You can sell... Henry VIII, the Bible, you can make him an enthusiast for it, as long as you don't tell him who's really responsible.
1: Yes. Don't they say it's amazing what you can get done as long as you don't mind who takes the credit? Well, it's the perfect example of that, isn't it? Yeah.
2: I mean, to be fair, he doesn't just not take the credit. He also gets burned alive. I would hope that in most modern management situations, the penalties wouldn't be quite so severe.
1: Is it true, or is this uh, fox or apocryphal in other ways, that he says on the stake, Lord, open the King of England's eyes?
2: Uh, Well, it's true that Fox says he says that, but, you know, we don't know. I mean, a lot of these reported speeches are too good to be true. I think it's completely plausible that he would have said that. He had certainly expressed that kind of opinion many times. He is aware of how fast things are moving in England, so it's not just a kind of pious, impossible hope. It's tantalisingly close So possibly words are being put in his mouth, but if so, they're the kind of words that even if he didn't say them out loud, I suspect he did pray that that day.
1: Well, we must leave it there. Thank you so much for introducing us on this whirlwind tour to the first printed Bible in English. Uh, There are 20, 30, 50 things I want to come back and ask you another time, but if you'll allow me. But thank you so much for today.
2: That's been a great pleasure. I'd love to pick this up again someday. Thanks.
3: Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at notjusttudors
0: or by email notjustthetudors at historyhit.com.